Well, welcome to Christ and Kingdom. It is good to be back after the the holidays and uh, here with my good friend, Pastor Emilio in Fresco, Texas. Uh, It's pastoring City View Church. And we're going to talk today about the kingdom of God. And, And the kingdom of God can be described as the central focus of scriptures. But there's lots of confusion around what is that, what does that mean? What is the kingdom of God? What is its nature? How has the kingdom of God developed over the ages throughout the, throughout the Bible? What's the nature of the kingdom at this present time? What will the kingdom be like in its fullness, uh, in its fullest sense, uh, at the, at the end? Um, when we're thinking about the kingdom of God, we also have to think about its impact on eschatology and the application of the kingdom to our culture and to the church. And so in this episode, we're going to seek to unpack a proper theology of the kingdom of God, right? When Jesus bursted onto the scene, when John the Baptist bursted onto the scene, they preached the kingdom of God is at hand. So Pastor Emilio, it is good to be back with you. And I'm excited to, to, to talk about this. Um, good to be with central. you too, brother. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. How, how are you doing? You. How was the holidays or are you all better now? Well, the holidays, you know, are always to me, um, it's like the great suspension Everything gets suspended on the holidays. It's like no one can do anything. You can't accomplish anything. You can't meet with anybody. It's everyone's too busy. Everyone's uh, too rushed and overwhelmed. And uh, it's great and everything because you get to eat some great food and hang out with friends and family and things like that. But, you know, it's always great when it's over, too. (laughs) (laughs) When the the Christmas lights come down and, you know, you get past that. It's like, okay, let's get back to reality kind of thing. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But it was good. It was a it was a good time over here, and uh, we certainly did have some good food. And um, yeah, it was a good time. Great time at church. We had a great meal together as a church. And uh, yeah, so just really excited for twenty twenty four. I don't know. Should I be excited about twenty twenty four based on what they're talking about? I don't know. <laughs> but it's kind of crazy. But here it comes. Amen. Well, you know, in the premise of the of, of our opening. Uh, we're talking about the kingdom of God. And uh, the argument was that the kingdom of God can be described as the central focus of, of Scripture. That's kind of a, yeah. that's a, that's a bold uh, statement um, yeah. to just, just come off, you know, come off firing with. Uh, and it's often not a, par- a central part of the conversation amongst Christians, you know, so how, how do you justify, uh, that kind of, that kind of statement, you know, in saying that the kingdom of God is central to the biblical narrative? I think that's a fair question, Mike, because, uh, you're right. It is, it is somewhat of an all consuming, uh, general statement, but you know, our podcast is entitled Christ and kingdom for a reason. There was, um, there was a book that was written, um, by a collection of guys uh, that did a book for Crossway uh, called From Heaven uh, He Came and Sought Her. And of course, that is a book that was written on the atonement. Yeah, I'm looking at it right in, now. Yeah, and that book right there, I don't know if you remember, but G.I. Packer does the introduction. Of course, G.I. Packer does the introduction <laughs> to everything, but uh, he did the introduction there. And one thing that G.I. Packer said in that introduction, with, which I think was absolutely fascinating, is he said that scripture, of course, is written and it's about the glory of the triune God 
And certainly we do not ever deny that because we have a triune God. But Scripture itself is unmistakably Christocentric, which is to say what the triune God ordained in Scripture as its central theme or loci is Christ, his person and his work. And what I would say is when you examine the teaching of Scripture, what is Scripture? Well, Gerhardus Voss said that Scripture is history, and it is the history of special revelation. But because the Bible is history, it's going somewhere. And every aspect of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, we would say, contributes to this telos, this goal, this final purpose and end for which Scripture is written. And I would argue that what that is, is Christ and kingdom. That central loci of the Bible of Scripture, which loci just means theme or a central teaching, central idea, it's controlling, limiting concept. And what that central idea is, is nothing less than the person and work of Jesus Christ in the establishing and in the procuring of his kingdom. And so I, I, I personally, I don't think you can kind of overstate how central and how important uh, the theme of the kingdom of God is, I would say it is absolutely the central theme of the entirety of Scripture. Because when you come to the finality of it, and when you come to the final revelation of it, and the consummation of it, what remains is the eternal kingdom of God. And so there you have it. And so you have the kingdom of God that is then uh, introduced and, if you would, um, sort of, uh, you know, taught and displayed and manifested in different stages along redemptive history. So something like that to answer the question of, isn't that too, isn't that an exaggeration or is that, you know, that's a bold claim. All of scripture is about the kingdom of God. Not really, not when you see it along these different lines. Amen. You know, I've been having a lot of conversations with some, uh, some of the dispensational, my dispensational brethren. Um, and one, one of the things I notice is, is oftentimes we're using the same words or phrases, but are referring to two separate different mm-hmm. things. Right. And, and the necessity for defining the terms. And so how one, uh, a dispensationalist might view the kingdom of God is different than how probably what we're we're going to be talking about here. So can you give us a, a, yeah. a just a definition? Uh, you know, put the put the yeah. cookies on the bottom shelf for us. Yeah, you, you know what's interesting is um, giant books have been written to expound on the nature of the kingdom to define the kingdom. Um, based on a recent book that we're actually going to talk about here in a moment by S.M. Bao, Stephen Bao. Stephen Bao has written this book um, on the kingdom of God called The Majesty on High. And it's a very good book, and it was written back in 2017. But um, his definition of the kingdom of God uh, is mainly defined along the lines of a new creation, 
And because the kingdom of God is a very complex doctrine or theme or idea in the Bible, a topic and subject, I, I would want to describe the kingdom of God in, in one word and, and take a stab at it and say, well, you're going to take, you know, 500 pages by, <laughs> you know, by Ritterboss on the kingdom of God, and, and you're really going to break it down to one word. Well, new creation is two words, but heaven is one word. And so if we're asking, if somebody put a theoretical gun to my head and told me, what is the kingdom of God? I would say heaven. And I would say that something like what Stephen Baugh is arguing in his book is correct. That in, in, the, in the final analysis, we're not talking about the kingdom of God being introduced. We're not talking about the, the kingdom of God being conceived of as a principle as a feature or an aspect of the kingdom of God? Because here's the thing, Mike, a lot of folks have defined, okay, what is the kingdom of God? And if you just take the Gospels, for example, you're looking at a certain aspect of the kingdom of God there that is mainly dealing what is known as inaugurated, uh, inaugurated eschatology of the kingdom. You're talking about the kingdom being uh, sort of, um, you know, introduced in an inaugural form. And of course, the kingdom of God is not consummated because Jesus gave us too many examples at which the, the, the consummate kingdom of God will consist of things that we will never find down here in this world, like the absence of death or the absence of marriage or the absence of sin. Those things will never happen down here. Not in this world, not in this age, not in this realm, and not in its inaugural stage. And so, but the inaugurated kingdom of God is not the kingdom of God proper. It's not the kingdom of God in its actual fullest form. So we have to ask the question, when the, when the fullness of the kingdom comes, it's no longer a principle it's no longer, you know, that it can be evidenced by something, let's say, Mike, like casting out demons, right? Mm -hmm. Jesus says the kingdom of God has come upon you. But of course, he does not mean the kingdom in its consummate form. And so there will be a time in which the kingdom of God will not have any of these inaugural stages, but will be an absolute consummate form and it's eternal. There are actually there are actually some proponents of theonomy that believe that the kingdom of God is not eternal, that it ends actually the moment that Jesus returns. So Jesus returns and the kingdom of God is over. Uh because the kingdom is then handed back to the Father. It you know we we established the kingdom through our own cultural uh, mandate. And, uh, and through evangelism and Christianization of the world, and then the kingdom of God is over. And we, you know, from our perspective and, and people like, whether it's Herman Ritterboss or, Her or, or Gerhardus Voss or Stephen Baugh or, or others, no, the kingdom of God is eternal. It never ends. And so that, that is something of a working definition of the kingdom of God. Uh, the kingdom of God is, of course, and already not yet, we're going to talk about that, but in its, in its strictest 
and maybe we can even say in the ultimate sense of the word, the kingdom of God refers to heaven in its consummate form. Yeah. So backtracking. So, you know, the first question is justifying the kingdom of God as the central focal focal point of, of scripture, or you can even maybe even describe it as the marching beat of what scripture is, you know, the path that scripture is, is going down to its ultimate end is heaven. You know, and oftentimes yeah. we think of, of the garden, right? The garden is, well, that was, that was almost a, an end of itself. Like God's desire was just to create man to live in this garden. Was that his end goal? Or was, mm-hmm. was there something far, far greater? And we talk in, in terms of, of types and shadows and promise and, and fulfillment. And you're taking this idea to its, to its end, to the biblical end mm-hmm. of, yeah. of what, what we're talking about from Genesis to Revelation. Would that be a, mm-hmm. an accurate summary? Yeah, I think so. I think so. And I think it shows us, Mike, already, you're already touching on something that's really important, which is a hermeneutical principle of how do we interpret the kingdom of God, you know, in Scripture. And if we don't interpret the kingdom of God in Scripture um, in a typological fashion, which, which just means this, guys, that when you are interpreting the kingdom of God, the, the, the subject of the kingdom— Part of what you're occupying and what you're doing is typology. And when you are dealing with typology, you're talking about an ultimate reality that has a a partial, temporary, temporal uh, type or expression in the history of redemption, right? And then that temporary symbolic form, that type, then has a fulfillment. And that fulfillment is going to be along this redemptive historical line. It's going to be inaugurated fulfillment, and then it's going to be consummated fulfillment. But it just shows you, Mike, that you really are, in a sense, working backwards in your hermeneutic. You're really not, but it feels like it, because what I'm saying is, in order to have a proper exegesis of the kingdom, you need to begin, in a sense, with the end of the story. You need to begin with the consummate idea of the kingdom of God in order to inform the initial inaugurated stages of the kingdom of God, to know what it is is being inaugurated. What is being, like you said, uh, types and shadows, what is being shadowed down? What is being projected down in all of these types and shadows that we see throughout the Old Testament history. You won't know that, Mike, until, unless you begin, if in a sense, with a consummate view of the kingdom, which really is what? What they would call an archetypal view of the kingdom. You're beginning with the original, to use the language of Exodus 25, uh, to use the language of, of uh, Hebrews chapter, five, uh, chapter 8, you are beginning with the original pattern, you see? Yep. And the original pattern, let's take the theme of the, of the temple, right? What do you see in the beginning of Scripture? Well, you see temple imagery. You see temple ideas, temple themes. Hey, listen to this. Before there ever was a temple built, how does, how does Jacob, how does Jacob speak about the house of God? 
That's a good question, Emilio. How does Jacob speak about the house of God? <laughs> because he was shown the original pattern in, in his dream. Yeah. Remember? Yep. And he says, how awesome is this place? The Lord was in this place, and I didn't even know it. And he says, this is what? The Beit Elohim. Well, that phrase, Beit Elohim, the house of God, is used of the temple. He says, it is the house of God. It is the gateway of heaven. And so he saw the archetypal temple structure, if you would, the house of God proper. And then what you find throughout redemptive history, of course, is that we build an earthly house. Yep. We, build a, we build a symbolic house, a typological tabernacle and then temple. But this is the same thing with the kingdom of God. Um, he could have just said, he could have said, Jacob could have said in that moment right there, what, how awesome is this place? What is it? It is the kingdom of God. And he would not have been wrong. And, and then we see, of course, the actual typological kingdom of God in the history of Israel until we reach its fulfillment. It inaugurated eschatology, Christ and his people, and then consummate eschatology, the return of Christ and the glorification of his people in heaven. Amen. So we, we yeah. find ourselves today in between those two events. Right, the inaugurated and the consummated between the first coming and the second coming. And somewhere we exist somewhere, you know, in, in time between those two events. So in in that context, yeah. how does the kingdom of God work right now? Right? How should we think as in, in as the church, as New Testament believers, you know, what does this mean to us? Yeah. And that's kind of some that's that's kind of what everybody's asking, right, Mike? Because that's what these books are being written for. That's why Stephen Ball can write his book. That's why Ritterboss wrote his books on the kingdom. That's why people are writing so much on biblical theology. That's why, you know, you can have a book like Coming Out of Southern, you know, uh, Kingdom Through Covenant. People identify the kingdom of God as this central idea. And then at, usually at the end of their books, they're interacting with um, the now question, how does the kingdom of God work right now? What is the nature of the kingdom of God right now? And I would say, again, if you always are going to keep this tension of already, not yet. And so in the already inaugurated aspect of the kingdom of God, we have to, if we go back to Christ, we have to begin messianically, right? That the kingdom of God has a certain unique messianic application. And you can see that in his, in his miracles in his signs and wonders, his casting out of demons, you see evidence, right, uh, if you would, of a foretaste of the powers of the kingdom of God. This is what Hebrews also says, right? People that have tasted of the, of the powers to come, basically tasted of the age to come already. So you have this inaugurated messianic stage. Now, here's something that's really important, Mike, then you have a redemptive level that we as Christians are partaking of the kingdom right now, but, but this is something that we have to insist on. We are only partaking of the kingdom of God right now at the redemptive level through union with Jesus Christ. Now, Mike, what do you expect to be in the kingdom? What's the focal point of the kingdom? Christ. And what is he doing as the focal, the center, the epicenter of the kingdom? Where is he at? On his throne. 
ruling and reigning. He's on his throne. And so what does scripture say regarding the throne of God and believers right now? We are seated with him in the heavenly places. (laughs) Right now, we're not waiting for that, but we are seated with him in the heavenly places already, in a sense, we are because of our union with Christ. And so that shows you, I mean, think about that, Mike. This is a deep kingdom idea, the throne. It doesn't get more kingdom-minded than that. And our participation in the throne is about as deep into the kingdom as you can go, (laughs) right? But we understand that that kingdom participation is strictly redemptive. And this will keep us from the error of having either a hyper-eschatology or having a diminished eschatology, having a, um, you know, having a subpar eschatology. And so that, you know, that, that becomes, you know, that, that becomes really important. If we, if we, if we don't, if we're not careful to identify the redemptive experience of the kingdom of God and confine ourselves to that redemptive level, Mike, we will fall either on one side or the other of, of the error of overrealized eschatology mm-hmm. or, as Stephen Bow points out, underrealized eschatology. And so that's where we find ourselves right now. Now, I, w- I would say this, uh, Mike, about this last point on this question is I think it's important and this is why I wrote down the, in terms of the ministry of the local church, because when we think about, well, what about, the, what about the practical, tangible, physical, temporal expressions of the kingdom of God here and now? What about that? And I would say that that is absolutely at work within the ministry of the local church. Yeah. And you have plenty of passages. I don't know if you can think of any, brother, but you have plenty of passages that speak about the church's a connection to the theme of the kingdom of God. And so the church becomes instrumental of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God and its redemptive application in the world spreading throughout the world. So I, I, we can go on and on and on with that point, but I think it's important to get some of those factors in there. Yeah, that's good. Let me, let me kind of go back to a question off notes here a little bit. Um, earlier yep. when I was talking about, you know, I was, I was, talking to a dear brother he's a dispensational you know guy and and can you kind of just take a take a minute and how would the different you know we're speaking of this in a covenantal all mill perspective how would a dispensational yeah. look at this or even other you know within historic pre-mill or post-mill uh think of the kingdom well we're actually i mean that was part of what i wanted to talk about of course because that that gets to exactly, you know, um, where people live. I mean, you either live as a postmillennialist or you live as a premillennialist, and each one of them has their distinct view of the kingdom. Um, but just to, just to at least touch on this for now, I would just say that when it comes to premillennialism, um, it falls under the category, right, of an underrealized eschatology, where they believe that the kingdom of God is a geophysical idea that will be manifested, strictly speaking, in the future, in the millennium, 
and therefore, for them, the kingdom of God is, we shouldn't really be uh, talking about our participation in the kingdom of God right now. So they tend to shy away from that language. Because yeah, it's we're in the church age. You know, right. Christ hit pause on interacting with the Jews to oh, transfer sure. to the Gentiles, and then the rapture happens, and now he's interacting sure. again with the Jewish people in sure. in the kingdom of God, in their, their framework. Exactly right. Yeah. So excellent. And then, exactly. then all-mill perspective, you know. Well, yeah. Well, the all-mill all perspective is going to stress, of course, that there is no future literal millennium, that the millennium is a spiritual and metaphorical reality that if you want to say it is literal, I would say in the strictest sense of the word, yes, the, the, the reign of Christ with his people is literally transpiring in heaven where the throne of Christ is. Mm -hmm. And that's my position right now, something that I call onomillennialism. And I think that's a very important thing. Yeah, that's like, and you even said just a few minutes ago, I'm quoting Ephesians, that we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Yeah. You know, well, what's the literal interpretation of that? Like, are we, you know, bodily seated with, there's a, there's a spiritual reality, a spiritual uh, dimension to that um, yeah. in our perspective. So, okay, what are some of the important principles uh, to interpret the kingdom? Yeah, the, these are... You know, when, whenever you approach the subject of the kingdom of God, um, if you don't have governing principles, of course, you have to figure out hermeneutically, how do you interpret the Bible? <laughs> okay, and so from a reform perspective, we approach the Bible in a redemptive, historical, Christocentric fashion. But it's important, I'll give people, because we don't have time, I mean, that's, a, that's an episode all its own. But let me just give folks a couple of principles that are really important for interpreting the kingdom. Number one, one of the most important principles is this already not yet dynamic to understand that. And I think that will cause you to avoid so much confusion and error, uh, either on a overrealized or underrealized eschatology, as we've talked about. Uh, but the already not yet is very, very important. And Stephen Baugh, in his book, he opts for the language of inaugurated and consummated. Yeah. Fine. I think they're both talking essentially about the same thing, uh, but we want to understand this. That this, Mike. Mike, here's the thing: is what 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 did Jesus have to tell his disciples and the people of Israel constantly? They they misunderstood the kingdom of God. <laughs> I mean, one of the central errors of Israel at the time and the people is that they did not understand the already not yet nature of the kingdom of God. Even the disciples after the resurrection, Acts chapter 1, is it at this time that you will restore the kingdom to Israel? So they were still, even after the resurrection and all the time they spent with Christ, they were still looking for a temporal, um, consummate expression of the kingdom of God during an inaugurated stage of the kingdom of God, and therefore they were still <laughs> under great confusion regarding what the kingdom of God is. 
and not a lot's changed. Because yeah, and so the already not yet confusion is super important. Mm-hmm. Now the other thing people want to know: what is the nature of the kingdom? I'll give you an example, uh, Mike, on Red Grace Live, our YouTube channel. Um, Mike and I, I, you know, we did an episode where we talked about a post-millennial guy, Joel Webin, um, and he insists that r- the overturning of Roe v. Wade <laughs> is an example of dominion. It's an example of Jesus putting all his enemies under his feet. And, uh, and of course, the problem with that kind of geophysical interpretation of the king and the kingdom is that what happens when they overturn Roe v. Wade again? <laughs> you know, because none of us can see that happening, right? Yeah. <laughs> or something else worse than Roe v. Wade comes in. Yeah, all the states now legalize abortion yeah, exactly. independently. Right. And so is that an example of the the enemies of Christ coming back again and diminishing the kingdom so the kingdom is so the kingdom increases and then diminishes this is the problem it, that's the problem with a overrealized eschatology so i would just like to say this micah mike um it's not easy to keep you and micah separate by the way cuz you guys you know sorry mike and micah that sounds like a good podcast right there mike and micah <laughs> But let's understand something that that Edmund Clowney taught, which was really good. He said, you know, there's so much discussion on the kingdom of God. There's so many different ways to interpret this. There's so many factors and things to consider. He says, but really, in one sense, it's very easy. If you want to understand the kingdom, you need to look at the king. And whatever question you have about the kingdom, ask that same question about the king. And it will make perfect sense. Is the kingdom here? I don't know. Is the king here? I've done this so many times for my church and for, uh, for people that want to know about the kingdom of God. And you would say, well, yes, the king is here, but he's, and I've had some, and I've had Mike, I've had people that answer very quickly and they say, no, the king's not here. (laughs) Oh, he's not. (laughs) That's terrible news. Tricky, tricky. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. And so, and so yeah, well, and then they say, oh well, yeah, well, he's here in a certain sense. Perfect. Then the kingdom of God is here in a certain sense. And then if you ask the question, is the kingdom here physically? I don't know. Is the king here physically? Uh, did the kingdom of God already come? I don't know. Did the king already come? And you ask these, is the kingdom coming in the future? I don't know. Is the king coming? So there you go. Um you 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 have the king as one of the ultimate litmus tests and hermeneutical grids for interpreting the kingdom. So I can say a lot more about the principles involved, like typology and the principle of intrusion and things like that, that what was Israel in the past? Well, Israel is an example of the kingdom of God breaking into this world, this time, this age, and having a sort of projection of the true kingdom of God in its consummate form, in this sort of inaugurated, initial, historical, uh, typological form. And so, a lot we can say about that. Yeah, excellent. So, let me, let's let's move forward with it and, and talk about the, 
um, the sh- how do we structure our theology of the kingdom? Yeah, it, that's a great question. Here's why. Because you're going to have to approach the subject of the kingdom somehow. And if you have, let's say you have, Mike, a, a historical, literal, grammatical, dispensational hermeneutic. Well, according to that hermeneutic, you interpret every passage of Scripture on its own, in its own merit, in its own historical situation, in its own literary form, and you are not supposed to allow future revelation, like the New Testament, interpret or inform previous revelation. Now, let's, let's be realistic here, brother. Do they really abide by this? No. No, they do not. I mean, what, just listen to a sermon by a premillennialist talk about anything regarding eschatology, Israel, the kingdom of God, and it is not long before they're using the New Testament as, as proof text to explain the meaning of an Old Testament text. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So that becomes very important. So you're going to have to have some kind of approach to the relationship between Old and New Testament, Old and New Revelation. And therefore, it is important to put eschatology in its right perspective. I'm still waiting for the systematic theology that comes out, Mike, that begins with eschatology, a systematic theology that begins with eschatology, because you know what, brother? A lot of the theologians, the reformed, the reformers, uh, a lot of them would point out the primacy of eschatology, how that in the Garden of Eden, in creation, you already have eschatological ideas that are being presented right there. Uh And so, in a sense, hermeneutically speaking, eschatology is first, not soteriology. It's eschatology that has priority, always. And so, it's important to see how this, uh, how the, the primacy of eschatology uh, exist within the Old Testament itself? How does the how does the Old Testament develop its own eschatological view? Well, for those that are interested, Gerhardus Voss, uh, he has a little volume entitled The Eschatology of the Old Testament, which is a profound book, a profound work. And it just shows you um, the development of eschatological themes just within the Old Testament. And then, of course, what you find there is you find the relationship between protology and eschatology. The Bible teaching first principles, first things, creation, Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and then eschatology, even within the Old Testament as you go to the prophets, for example, and how they intersect, those kinds of things. So there's a lot of ways to structure your theology here, but you got to put eschatology first, and you need to see how does the New Testament use the Old Testament. And I mean, this is 10,000 foot view, Micah, because it's much more uh, complicated than that. But it's also simple in that we're just asking, how does the New Testament fulfill the Old Testament, number one? And how does the New Testament use the Old Testament, number two? And that what you find is you find this rich, uh, this rich eschatological doctrine of the kingdom of God coming back to you if you approach 
scripture that way. And I think you begin to structure it in a way, Mike, where you start accounting for things and not, watch this now, this is very important, not setting scripture against itself. As if the Old Testament is teaching one program about the kingdom of God, and the New Testament is teaching a different program of the kingdom of God. Nothing could be further from the truth when you begin with protology and eschatology at the beginning. Does that make sense? Yeah, and you know, I, I was as you were talking about there, and I have a few few comments um, and a question. We see Jesus did that. He, in talking with his disciples, he beginning began with Moses and all the prophets, and went through the Old Testament and explained how they pointed to him. Right, and and Jesus did that, and then the apostles under his authority to to write um, the scriptures. They went back to the Old Testament. Peter, on the day of Pentecost, when he's justifying the the pouring out of the Spirit, he goes back to Joel when when he's talking about Christ's ascension. He goes back to Dave, right? He goes back to the Old Testament to say, "Hey, what we thought was this was actually this," um, and and brings to light what was veiled. In the Old Testament, and, and and we see that all throughout. Now, you said something a few minutes ago that I think will get some people to kind of stop in their their tracks because they haven't thought of it. You had talked about we see eschatology, we see we see that unfolding in the garden. Um, yeah, justify that. What do, what do you mean by that? Like somebody that that's a brand new thought to somebody who's like, wait, what? No, the garden's just like okay. Well, there's. That's the there's beginning. some rivers that are coming out and there's like <laughs> till the land. And what are you talking about? It's just, no, it's all, what, what do you mean by that? <laughs> well, it's, it's, yes, that's right. It, it, it requires a little bit of justification. It's kind of like that scene in, um, in the Star Wars film I tell, I tell during Sunday school, just to make a point is people ask, you know, is it possible to learn this new power? <laughs> and uh, the Sith Lord says, not from a Jedi, right? <laughs> you can't get that conclusion, let's say, from a dispensational hermeneutic. You can only get that conclusion from a redemptive historical reformed hermeneutic. And of course, when you think about the Garden of Eden, uh, what are you looking at there? Well, you're looking at the foundations of covenant history. And right at the beginning, you have the revelation of the covenant of works. And what is the covenant of works? Well, the covenant of works is an eschatological covenant. It's a covenant wherein the image-bearing uh, creature can be perfected and advanced into glory through their own, as the Westminster Confession says, personal, entire, exact, and, uh, um, and uh, uh, personal obedience to the law of God, to the covenant to the stipulations of the covenant, what will that result in? Well, perfect obedience on Adam's behalf will result in the translation of not only himself, but of his posterity into the, the age to come. And that's what the symbolism of the tree of life is about. The symbolism is that if Adam would have obeyed and then given the authority, as Revelation says, to eat of the tree of life, he would have advanced into a higher realm, which we now know to be, according to passages like Hebrews 4, the Sabbath realm, the Sabbath estate, which is essentially synonymous with eternal life. 
And therefore, um, Genesis at the very beginning is beginning and structuring our entire uh, cosmology, our entire worldview along a two-age structure that is rooted, careful now here, that is rooted in a two-register cosmology, a two-register dualism. The upper register, heaven, lower register, the visible heaven and earth. So you have the highest heaven, the realm of angels, and the visible heaven and earth down here. And these are two distinct realms constituting two distinct ages. And if Adam obeys the the stipulations of the covenant of works, he will advance out of this realm, out of this register, out of this age, and into a higher order of life, into a higher order of things, a higher quality of life. You know, eat, the Garden of Eden was good. It was paradise. It was perfect. But it was not heaven. Amen. And that's so important to understand. Yeah. That then what we get from the full structure of the Bible is that therefore Eden itself, the Garden of Eden itself, is therefore type uh, typological. It is an earthly projection of the heavenly paradise of God. Revelation chapter 2, verse 7. The heavenly paradise of God, which is the kingdom of God in in its celestial form, projected down into this terrestrial world. Yeah. And so that becomes a, a two-age, two-register cosmology and eschatology. I hope that makes sense. Yeah, that was excellent. And, you know, for our listeners, there's a book by Dr. Ling Tipton on the foundations mm. of covenant theology that I actually have always here in arm's reach from my desk. And, you know, I've heard, I've heard individuals say salvation is taking us back to the garden. And I always, oh, no. I always look at my go, brother. I hope not, because there was a threat of death. Um, yeah, you know. no. There, there's a there's a contemporary Christian song that says, "I want to be in Eden. Yeah. I want to be naked and unashamed." And that's the chorus. And I'm thinking to myself, nothing could be further yeah. than the truth. Yeah, and praise God, you do not want to be back in the Garden of Eden. Yeah. I want, I want to go to the end of Revelation where there's no more tears, there's no more death. Yeah, it is done, a, amen, it is done away with. There's no more threat. There's just heaven. Yeah, and we are we are perfected into the image of our of our Savior, uh, forever to enjoy fellowship with Him, unbroken you know, fellowship. You know, yeah, you know, Mike. Here's the thing: is that that song right there? I think it's by Phil Wickham or somebody, but. You know, Phil Wickham might have lyrics that sound good. God is sovereign. God is mighty. God is glorious. And some of the lyrics may sound very biblical and right and good. But boy, doesn't that illustrate the importance of knowing eschatology? Because um, the last thing you ever want to say is that you want to be back in the Garden of Eden again. I mean, my goodness. It might sound... That is a massive theological mistake. It might sound good and have a poetic ring to it, but... Yeah, it's missing the theological yeah. mark for sure. Um, yeah. <clears throat> all right, so let's let's kind of get down to some practicals here. How in the context of the centrality of the kingdom theme mm-hmm. uh, for a proper theology uh, in teaching this scripture, how essential, right for a for a pastor for you know even a, even a, a 
just a layman, uh, everyday, you know, yeah. Christian, if you will. How central is this to a, a proper theology and of teaching the scripture? Well, you know, I don't, I don't think I am overstating it when you tease it out far enough and really um, explain it and really uh, expound on this point. But that uh, there, there is a lot of error in in people's thinking and in their theology, everything from spirituality to Christ and culture to eschatology to your view of salvation um, as it pertains to things like sanctification that are affected directly from having some sort of distorted view of the kingdom of God. And you can see this, for example, Mike, I wrote down, the prosperity gospel. How many, mil- you know this better than I do, brother, because you're a missionary at heart and you've been all over the world. You know the, the ravages of the prosperity gospel yeah. all over the planet and how much damage that can do to the quote unquote visible church and how much, how damaging that is and how disastrous that is. And, 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 and wouldn't you agree, brother? all of the cleanup you need to do when you get there because people have these prosperity things in their head. Yeah. And they think the kingdom of God is of such a nature that they expect to be wealthy and healthy and prosperous and and all of that. And nothing could be further from the truth because a proper theology of the kingdom would teach you that if you expect wealth and honor and riches and, you know, let's, let's expand this, brother. If you expect dominion, <laughs> if you expect reconstruction, if you expect to repristinate the culture, you're operating off of a, of, a, of a perverse understanding of the kingdom of God, and it's already not yet tension, and it's inaugurated consummate principles, and it can have a direct effect on the way that you look at things like the church and politics, evangelism, culture, uh, the cultural mandate of Genesis, the nature of the Great Commission, the nature of Christian witness in this world. Um, you know, it's amazing to me, for example, that we've talked a bit of premillennialism, uh, Mike, but you also understand that post-mill theonomy, especially the type that is out there today that's being advanced by people like Joel Webin and Apologia, Jeff Durbin, and, uh, you know, who are the other guys? The Moscow guys or whoever. They have this hyper-eschatological view, and they are, they are promising their people some kind of geophysical manifestation of kingdom dominion and kingdom rule. And it's, to me, it's uh, totally foreign to the pages of scripture. And it's based on an unfortunate reading of many Old Testament passages like Psalm 2, Psalm 110, Isaiah 2, Isaiah 11, Isaiah 9, and many other places where you can, if you're not careful, where you can twist the teaching thereof and end up with some kind of hyper eschatological exaggerated eschatology 
And never forget, brother, that a exaggerated eschatology always leads to an exaggerated spirituality. And that's what you find in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, an exaggerated eschatology led them to an exaggerated spirituality. So much so that Paul has to tell the Corinthians, you know, all, you know, already you have all you want. <laughs> you've got everything you could possibly want now. Already you've become rich without us. You have become kings. And would that would, would that you did reign. I wish you I wish you were ruling and reigning right now so that we might share the rule with you. And so what a verse, right? Yeah. Like like at any point in time that you think in this world at the geophysical level the church is going to take some sort of control and rule and dominion that will take over <laughs> the magistrates <laughs> of the world, the centers of power, and that we will achieve some sort of partial inaugurated dominion in the world. Uh, it's, it's amazing, but this is a passage that actually explicitly touches on all this. And notice, it's in the pejorative. It's not good. Uh, Paul is not supporting this line of thinking. He's condemning it. And so that is a failure. Notice, Rule, listen to the language. You are rich. You are, this is uh, 1 Corinthians 4 8. You are rich. You are kings. You are reigning. And you are ruling. Now, what language is that about? <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like the language of the kingdom to me. So you have a, you have a, um, you have a, a deficient understanding of, the kingdom's application uh, in this world. And what it leads to here, Micah, what it leads, or uh, Mike, I'm sorry, see, that's, there you go. What it leads to this, it leads to in both post-millennialism or pre-millennialism, if people can grasp this, understand this, this is so crucial. It leads to creation being renewed during the curse in the present world, yeah. the present yep. age. And so what it is, sadly, it's an attempt to curtail the curse. It's, a, it's an attempt to, to roll back the curse in the present evil age when we know, we know. When, when does the Bible says there was no more curse? That is in Revelation 22 Verses 1 through 5. That is when we are already in a new heaven, in a new earth, and the curse is gone. And that's when it's appropriate. Notice what that passage says, uh, Mike, at the end in verse 5. What does it say? It says that the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. That then is the appropriate time to speak of physical, consummate reigning with, with in, in the physical world. Mm, praise the Lord. And, uh, and, and 
Postmillennialism wants that now. Premillennialism wants it in the future, but not in heaven. And so premillennialism wants that same principle that is a violation of Revelation 22, 1 Corinthians 4. They want the curse to be reduced, to be somewhat removed, but still not heaven. (laughs) So it, it results in what I've been trying to teach people. It results in a tertium quid a third thing, a third realm, a third principle that I believe is nowhere taught in Scripture. So you've, you've throughout this episode, and, you know, to kind of bring it to a, to a close, and this has been a, a phenomenal conversation, scratching the yeah. surface in a very, very deep and technical um, topic. You've mentioned a few books and, and kind of wanted to give you the opportunity. Yeah. Uh, we've been reading S.M. Bao's The Majesty on High, and you've referenced that. Um, any, any comments you want to make on, on this book um, that sure. uh, you would want to point out? Are you recommending this book to our listeners? Oh, definitely. Yeah, you definitely want to pick this up, The Majesty on High by S.M. Bao and uh, B-A-U-G-H. And you want to get this book, and one of the reasons I really like this book is because Essenbao put it so easily. It's like, what is the kingdom of God? New creation, new heavens, new earth, period. That's it. Take the guesswork out of it. And then understand two principles, inaugurated eschatology, consummate eschatology. You have that as kind of your functioning framework, and you can actually do a lot of good in your Bible study and your theology, your eschatology, your understanding of the kingdom of God. And so that's a phenomenal book. Another book that is also really good is the book by Herman Ritterboss, Paul, an outline of his theology. Now there, we're talking about a very exhaustive book, uh, but his teaching there on the kingdom of God is also really, really good. And uh, and of course, Gerhardus Voss. Gerhardus Voss has a small book entitled um, uh, The Teaching of the Kingdom... Uh, the teaching of the kingdom and the, uh, the church and the teaching of the kingdom by, by Gerhardus Voss. And that is super important because it's a small work. It's a small, it's a small little book, but he also interacts with many of the same things that you're going to get from Ritter Boss, many of the same things you're going to get from Dr. Bao, and many of the things that you're going to get from Lane Tipton's book, the, the, the book that you mentioned, Foundations of Biblical Theology or Covenant Theology. Um, and of course, you also want to read Kingdom Prologue by Meredith Klein. Yeah. Uh, if you are the kind of guy that you're like, well, I need, to, I need to see it in scripture. I need exegesis. I need, uh, you know, I need a text for everything. I need a, I need a proof text. <laughs> and I like that. I'm like that too. Um, I would say you need to pick up G.K. Beale's New Testament, uh, New Testament theology. Yeah. Um, the Old Testament revealed in the New. Uh, you you need to get that New Testament biblical theology by G.K. Beale, so because Doctor Beale there is going to provide you with all the, I mean, just exhaustive uh, textual intertextuality and textual work to substantiate everything that he's talking about. And maybe you don't agree with everything Doctor Beale uh, will say uh, in that book. I don't know that I do, but the vast majority of it. His emphasis on the new creation and those types of things, super helpful. Yeah, absolutely. 
Yeah. And I've really appreciated the Majesty on High by Bow because it is, you know, it's what? It's 150 pages. Very, very simple, readable book. Um, And uh, does a fantastic job, even in even in citing scriptures. And of course, G.K. Beale's book is a is a masterpiece and and massive, Mm -hmm. massive work. So what a great, great conversation. Um, that we we've had yeah. today and there's so many, you know, I, I kind of am left feeling like, but there's so much more to discuss and talk about, you know, in this and I appreciate all your work and effort and, and explaining all these things, anything in closing you'd like to say? Yeah. Uh, keep an eye out for Red Grace Live. Um, we are going to be tackling the theology of Psalm two. And, uh, and I want to, I want to go through some of these crucial old Testament passages that I think are being used very popular today, very popular in culture, very popular in the conversation of cultural transformationalism and things like that in terms of how much of Psalm 2 are we, uh, are we, uh, going to experience in this world right now? How, how much, you know, how much should we expect for, um, you know, the nations, right? To be brought to heal in a sense. And, 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 and for Christ to rule them with a rod of iron and things like that. Uh, what does that all mean? The nations will be given to the sun. And I think that if you're not careful, you will hear proponents of different theologies using Psalm 2 as a foundation for a lot of things that I think are contrary to even this conversation here today on the kingdom. Oh, excellent. Well, you know, I'm teaching on Psalm 2 tonight, so hopefully I do it right. I'll be I'll be on the lookout for that Great. that message. Well, send that well send that to me because I'm going to need it for the episode. <laughs> see if I need to do any cleanup. Um, so that's awesome. Well, thanks for listening to this episode of Christ and Kingdom. Please don't forget to like and share this episode. And please remember to as as Pastor Milio said, check out uh, Red Grace Media Live on on Saturday nights at seven uh, for the broadcast there. And you can find past episodes on RedGraceMedia.com. So with that, Milio, always a pleasure. God bless my friend and all the, all the listeners. God bless you. Amen. God bless.